Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. Before we get to this episode, I have an exciting message to share. What you're about to hear is a story I originally covered back in 2017. It tells the story of an incredible UFO event from Clarenville, Newfoundland, that was famously witnessed and reported to authorities by an on-duty RCMP officer. Why am I releasing the episode now, you ask? Well, for one, the 42nd anniversary of this event is just around the corner, on October 26th to be exact. But it's much more than that. I'm telling this story again because this event is about to receive the mainstream attention I've always felt it deserved. It was just announced by the Royal Canadian Mint that they'll be commemorating this UFO event with a limited edition collectible coin. Weird, eh? Well, it is, but it's great, and it's not just any old coin. It's a silver rectangle-shaped coin, which features a painting of the object the RCMP officer described seeing. And when the coin is viewed under blacklight, it glows an eerie green color. It's amazing. Now this coin, like the prior UFO-themed coins in the past, is going to be met with huge demand, and only 5,000 of them were minted. So if you want one, follow the link in the show description immediately, as they're most likely close to selling out if not already sold out by the time you hear this. But if you do miss out on the chance to buy one, don't worry. I'm going to be running a contest that will allow nighttime listeners to win one of the two Clarenville UFO coins that I have. To enter the contest, simply find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll have published a post that asks the question, What do you think Constable Blackwood saw in the skies above Clarenville? I'll choose winners at random from the entries. So, best of luck to you. Now, let's get to the episode. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Hello, listeners. I have a really incredible story about a UFO sighting for you tonight. The story is going to take us back to the year 1978 and to the small town of Clarenville, Newfoundland. Now, even many of the UFO enthusiasts out there listening to this may not be familiar with this sighting. But let me just say straight out of the gate, this one is something special. And here's why. When many consider the identity of a strange object in the sky, there's often very little to go by. Researchers will start with the common explanations, like known aircraft or light or weather phenomenon. But once those are ruled out, we're often left with an eyewitness account and possibly some amateur photo or video evidence. But with that said, even high-end modern-day cameras do a poor job of capturing a point of light in a dark sky. And as such, visual evidence is usually of such poor quality that it does little more than distract from a description of what was seen by the naked eye. And that's why, in my opinion, the most compelling evidence is the detailed report of a credible eyewitness. And in tonight's case, we'll certainly get that. Like many others out there, my introduction to the story was via a strange piece of video footage that found its way across some of the more interesting places on the internet. 
There are endless versions of the video floating around, but most of them have a name to the effect of Newfoundland RCMP officer interview about UFO, 1978. The video itself shows a sort of makeshift press conference, all shot from a single stationary camera. As the video's name suggests, the tightly framed shot shows a uniformed RCMP officer seated alone at a desk, clearly and confidently answering a series of questions about a UFO sighting. No wind, was just simply a <clears throat> no, 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 the sky was clear and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. Would you mind holding up the, the drawing you did of the object of the camera's uh, pencil? This is just a, a, rough, a rough sketch off the, uh, the object. Now, the blue flashing lights, there was one on this side here and one on the other side of the vehicle and the red light was approximately here. Ever since I stumbled upon this video, I was taken by this case for a variety of reasons. For one, the video itself is a very entertaining piece of Canadian UFO history. But more than that, I was drawn in by the fact that the RCMP had allowed one of their officers to speak publicly about such an experience. And as I mentioned in the introduction, to me, that is some of the most compelling evidence there is. After I found this story, I knew it was something that listeners of Nighttime would enjoy. And thus, work on this episode began. But a funny thing happened while tracking down information on the sighting, and more specifically on the officer. My search kept leading back to viral videos of a guy whose home seemed overrun with wild raccoons. I'll get back to that a little bit later. For now, it's needless to say, I found the man in the video, Constable Blackwood, and he agreed to share his incredible story. So let's get to it. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, our topic is Constable Jim Blackwood and the 1978 Clarenville UFO sighting. So Jim, if you could just set the stage for me first and, and tell me a, a bit about your life just prior to this now famous sighting. I came from Stoughton, Nova Scotia. That's where my home is. And I joined the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in 73. And uh, and I just, at that time in 78, I was stationed in Clarenville, Newfoundland, which is halfway between uh, Gander and St. John's. And uh, so I was there about... I guess uh, a couple of years before this happened. And uh, I was newly married. Uh, in fact, I was married that month. Uh, we'll, we'll start at the very beginning uh, of, of this sighting. Can you describe the call that uh, let, that eventually led to you going to the scene of you know this UFO? It was about quarter two in the morning, October 26, 78, and uh, I dropped off my partner, who was Gary Loader at the time, to his house, and then I was heading back to the office to drop the car off and then go home. And I went in the office, and the phone rang. And instead of letting it go onto the the uh, recorder that we had there, uh, to the member on call, I answered the phone so to save him the trouble. And this was this Mr. Lethbridge from down the Marine Drive, and he said, "There's something up here in the sky." 
Now, before this happened, we've had two or three sightings reported to us uh, for about two-week period and at different parts of our detachment area. And I said, oh, great, here we go again, you know, because the last few times we never seen anything. A call to see a lighter object in the sky must have been unusual for a, a constable in, in Clarenville in 78. What would be a typical call? Like, what was the majority of your, you know, your shift like? Uh, most of our calls were uh, uh, breaking inner calls, uh, fight calls at clubs, mm-hmm. uh, car accidents, yeah, so, things of that nature. So, so a bright light in the sky would have been, a, you know, an unusual report? Oh, yeah, it was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, could you describe your, your arrival to the scene? So when you showed up at Mr. Lethbridge's house in your cruiser, can you just describe the scene you were met with? What was going on there? He wasn't at his residence, but he was down on what we call the Clarenville uh, town, town Wharf, and it uh, was just up from his residence. And uh, he was standing there with uh, some relatives and some other people, uh, and he was pointing to the sky and get me to come over with the car and looks. Mm-hmm. And, and so you pull the car up to the, you're on the waterfront. Is that, is that right? Where you Yeah, it was, we're right down the Marine drive on the waterfront. And, uh, when he, when he called me uh, over, I took the car and I drove right up to the end of the wharf and they just sort of followed me in because I wanted to get out as close as I could to, to where the object was. Mm-hmm. Now, when you got out of your cruiser to, to meet with them, what would like just your initial view what did what was your first view of this object what did you see well it was fairly high in the sky at the time and i had to use his binoculars to get a closer look at it and he had and, these bin- uh, did he have these binoculars with him oh yeah he had binoculars with him yeah he said here look at this he said look at it hmm. and of course i could see that it wasn't it wasn't a star or anything like that it was it, and it was getting closer hmm. And now walk me through what you saw. So you, you saw something in the in the sky. It wasn't a star. You're you're looking at it through through binoculars at this point. Just kind of walk me through. You know what what went on as you're on the waterfront with these guys. Well, we were just chatting back and forth and looking at this thing getting closer and closer. And and everybody was wondering, well, what is it? And I said, well, I I don't know what it is, but it's certainly not something I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. You know being around a lot of aircraft and things myself. And did they seem to be like uh, th- this crew that you met with on the waterfront, Lethbridge and, and his, I think it was his family, did they yeah. seem did they seem scared or were they finding it funny or amusing? Like what was the, the, the mood like? They were they were uh, in awe of it, I would, I would have to say. Everybody was. Mm. And, and that the closer and closer it got, all they could do was stand there and look. Mm. And nobody was saying anything. And I understand. I understand it went beyond binoculars. You were at first using binoculars, but then you you ended up getting a better view. Can you describe? Can you describe what you used? Well, I used the the ball scope telescope, which uh, magnifies uh, uh, an object fifteen times its normal size. And uh, for example, I could read the license plate of a car and also read the sticker number on the car. That's how, that's how clear it would be. Oh, wow. So, so you viewed the object through this ball scope. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and I didn't have to, I didn't have to turn it up much either. Cause I, if I turned it up all the way, it would, it would fill it. So I couldn't even see the object it was just 
it would blot it out if I turned it up too much. Mm-hmm. And so getting such a clear view of it, what what did it look like? Like, what did you see? Well, like it, it, uh, it had a very dull gray luster to it, a uh, very porous-looking type of metal. And um, most like, it's not like airplane metal, how nice and shiny it is, the aluminum, everything. It was was very dull looking and and heavy looking. Mm. That's the only way I could say. Did it have any any obvious features like you know windows or lights? No, or... it had nothing. No, it was just pure metal, and it was flat, oval shape with a with a tail on the back of it. But it wasn't a big tail. It was like a, a stubby looking thing. Hmm. And as you're looking at this, uh, assuming it's not, you know, I'm, I'm sure you didn't think it was a helicopter or an airplane. What Initially, what did you think you were looking at? Well, first thing popped in my head, I mean, I got something out of Star Trek here. It, uh, you know, this, this is a legitimate UFO, but it was nothing of this earth, especially the way it took off. And, and you described it as being, as being low. Did did it have a shadow or, or you know any obvious reason? Any obvious uh, visual? Well, the thing is, where, where Random Island was, uh, it, it blocked out Random Island, so you couldn't see it. Mm. And uh, from where we were, it blocked everything out. And the whole bottom part—I meant to say earlier—the whole bottom part was was lit up like a bright fluorescent light, and it was shining on the water. It was really super bright. And the whole bottom half was lit up like that. And uh, and it was moving back and forth. And I mean, not fast, just like it was going in a search pattern back and forth. And it seemed to be like the object seemed to be between you and Random Island. Yeah, it was only uh, uh, probably about a, maybe 1,000, 1,500 feet from us. Oh, wow. If I could have got my hands on a boat. <laughs> you would have been out there? I'd have been, I'd have been out there. I know we would have. So, so you weren't. You don't seem like you were scared. Like you were curious. Oh, or... not one bit. No, wasn't one bit nervous of it at all. Nobody there was. They were. Everybody was fascinated, hmm. except for poor Chess. He, uh, <laughs> he didn't want me to call the thing over. <laughs> oh yes, uh, and, and describe that. So I understand you. You tried to communicate with it. Yeah, I, I, I used the roof lights. We had red and blue uh, roof lights on the car. In fact, they were just new. Uh, before that, we just had the red bubble on the on the roof, but then we got these new bar lights, they're called, and uh, so I slapped them on, and uh, it, it answered back with flashing lights on the side and a strobe light uh, on the top, and it just flashed slow, not like a strobe, but it was bright white light on the top, and I kept flashing the lights on and off, and it was doing the same thing. It, it imitated everything I did, so they they were aware I was there. And I had my headlights on the whole time, shining on toward it. Wow. I wasn't trying to hide the fact I was there, you know, and I was trying to show them I was there. How long were you there watching it for? Oh, there an hour and a half, almost two hours. Huh. And then when it left, when it left, it um, took off like a shooting star the other way, but not not at first. It uh, it went up quite high in the sky before it disappeared. And then when you left the scene uh, of the sighting here, what was your, your first action? Like, did you go back to the to, to home base there? Or? Oh, yeah. I went right back to the office, and I called my staff sergeant. And uh, and I called him. I said, I know you're, not, I know you're awake because he was always awake. And uh, I told him, I said, 
I seen the flying saucer down there in Marine Drive. I said, I think it was that things that was flying around here for the last couple of weeks that people were talking about. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I said, I need your help and what I should do about it. So he came down and, uh, he said, well, do up a report on it. And, uh, he said, you sure you want to do this? I said, well, I said, I saw what I saw and I want to report it. So he, uh, he gave me a hand with the wording and all that stuff. And, and uh, it, it was sent off to Ottawa on secret, top secret paper, and then I never saw it again. And, and you mentioned that um, you, you thought you saw what had been flying around there in, in the weeks prior. Like, were there other reports of something anomalous? We something? had about two or three different reports, uh, but they were a long ways away. And by the course of time we got there, they were, it was gone. Mm-hmm. And But this thing here, it hung around. I mean, if the other ones were like that, we should have seen them too, but we didn't. Mm-hmm. Now, the report made its way to Ottawa, I understand. Was there ever an official you know, investigation done into what this may have been? Not really, other than what the, the uh, NASA Research Council did. They didn't do anything of an investigation. They just read our report and then made it made a decision themselves of what it was. What was that decision? What did they say? Well, they, they said it was the planet Jupiter we were looking at. And do you believe that at all? No. 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 I mean, any kind of an investigator should have uh, contacted the witnesses, even myself and the other witnesses, and, and got some uh, verbal reports on what happened, you know. But he didn't even do that. He just... He did the investigation of what he read, but if he if he read the report properly, he would have known what we were looking at it wasn't Jupiter. And I and I even described in the report that I was well aware of various aircraft and and helicopters that were on the go, you know, and that this craft was definitely not of this world. Is how I put it. With the, the this investigation and the ruling that it was Jupiter, uh, I understand that like this sighting had received such heavy media attention. How did the 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 press get involved in this? What happened was uh, the local guy uh, from the uh, VOCM News. He uh, he heard about it through people at coffee shop, you know, and so he went down to the office and he uh, he said, "Who who saw the flying saucer?" and uh, and I think one of the boys said, well, Blackwood did. So he knew me, so he called me at the house, and I said, I can't talk about it and, uh, unless I get permission from headquarters. So I hung up on him, and the next thing you know, the staff sergeant called me in. So he said, the headquarters wants you to do an interview with CBC Television. But anyway, he, he came out with a camera crew, and we did that interview out behind the office. And then the very next day, Jeff Sterling came out, and he did the interview in the office, in the staff sergeant's office, and uh, and that was the one that was on. It was on Newfoundland Television. Right to this very day, they still broadcast it mm-hmm. for a filler, like you know. How how did that sit down interview come about? Like it just seems like a, a very unusual situation to see a a police officer sitting down behind a desk, you know, as a young man getting grilled by with these questions about a UFO. How did this interview come about? 
Well, Jeff Sterling was very well known in Newfoundland, and he's multi-millionaire at the time. And he uh, he pulled a few strings to have that interview done, and um, and and the staff sergeant gave up his office and everything. And I'll tell you, when I was trying to do the interview, a couple of my co-workers were standing like his office had glass all the way around, mm-hmm. and they were standing the other side of the glass sticking their tongues out at me and making faces and stuff. And, uh, and I'm trying to look at this guy in the eye and trying to be serious, you know. Hilarious. <laughs> now, I guess that'll lead to my next question is like with uh, in, in the late 70s, a police officer uh, seeing a, a UFO is probably something that some people would laugh at. I, I'm just curious how your friends and family and especially the fellow police officers, how did they react to, to this story as well as the amount of media attention you were getting? Well, uh, they uh, they made fun of me, but they knew it was serious, and they believed what I saw, and uh, you know, because they they would own up to me in in private. You know, you know, we believe you know we believe your story, and and there was no never an issue. Even the ident people believed it, but uh, but if they're, if they were out there in the office together, they'd call me Mark from Mark and stuff like that, you know, but I mean, I just let it go off my, like a uh, water in a duck's back. I just didn't bother with it. it. You know, seeing something as unusual as this, it must have had some sort of impact on your life. Can you tell me, you know, how, how this sighting had, you know, had changed your life or affected you in some way? None whatsoever. I, um, I just went among my business like I normally did. And, uh, I never, I never had dreams about it or anything like that. Or and like I said, well, after I moved over here, I kept it quiet because I, I didn't want people to start up again about it, you know. And, and if some people ask me a point blank if I did see one, you know, I say yes, I did, and they say, oh yeah, right, and I say, okay, see ya, you know. And, and just as you explained, you've since uh, long since this sighting until now, you've you've left both Newfoundland and law enforcement. So just to get me caught up, can you tell me a bit about what's happened in your life since you know since this sighting back in the late seventies? Well, I left the force in nineteen eighty. I had, I had seven years in, and I my dad took ill, and I tried to get transferred home, but of course, see, the force wouldn't transfer you back then. And so I, I put in for a discharge, free discharge, and I got it. And when I moved back here, I went with the, the local police force here for seven years. And then I got on with the school board, and I drove school bus for 15, and then I uh, went to work for uh, Sobey's Empire. I was, I was operations supervisor for their building at the Empire Building. And I stayed there until four years ago. I retired before years is April. Oh, wow. And, yeah. and since your retirement, uh, I'm guessing with some of your free time, you, you again have captured the public imagination. This time, instead of it being a UFO sighting, it's with your uh, hugely popular YouTube channel called The Raccoon Whisperer. Can you, can, yes, can yeah. You, so just could you just describe your, your YouTube channel to people listening? Well, what happened there was my wife started this, uh, like I, I met my wife in uh, 2000, and... Uh, she had had raccoons feeding them every night long before I ever, you know. 
and we had all these cats here. So anyway, when we got married, we got married two years later, and uh, and we always had the raccoons here, and uh, and they were there every night, and she always made sure we had sandwiches. I mean, they don't eat, they didn't eat as good as they do now. <laughs> she would like she was pretty cheap with them, you know. Mm. But, but I give them the very best. And uh, but anyway, she died of cancer there in 2003, oh. and uh, it was a sudden cancer. Like she went in the hospital on Monday and was dead Wednesday. Oh. And the last thing she said was, you know, just make sure you look after the cats. Well, we had ten cats, and I had 16 more in the barn. And then uh, I had her mother here, so she wanted me to look after her. I did that for ten years, looked after her until she died. And uh, and all the cats died off except uh, well they they all died and then I got two more from a rescue in Halifax, but um, the rascal that I had there now she's a a daughter of uh, my wife's original raccoon, and I always said that you know I'll, I'll feed her until she dies and then I'm done. Well, that was 13 years ago, <laughs> and. Uh, and I said to Hope for Wildlife, I said, how long do these raccoons? She said, three to five years. I said, well, here I am 13 years later. She's still there. But uh, that's the reason I did that. And then a couple of years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine in Newfoundland, and uh, and I had the YouTube channel there well, forever. Mm-hmm. And I posted this video with the peanut butter sandwiches or something. So anyway, they said... Uh, this friend of mine said, you should put that on YouTube, but I didn't know what it was. She said, well, put it up. So I, I subscribed to it, and I put it on there. And then I started adding more videos, but um, the, the one with the peanut butter sandwiches is called, it took off. It's got like half a million views or something like that. And uh, so then she calls me back again. It was last year. She said, you're getting all these views. You can make money off it. So now I'm getting paid by Google. <laughs> for the advertising on my videos on YouTube. I don't get nothing for Facebook. Mm. But uh, so every video I make on Facebook, it also goes on YouTube. So I got 600 videos on YouTube now. And um, and now I got a following of like, I think 2,500 I got on there now from all over the world. And these are people watching videos of, of you feeding uh, yep. a group of raccoons. It's not just one. I've, the videos I've watched, it looks oh, like... Oh, I've had as many as 18 here. Jeez. But, and, uh... And when you say right here... Now, I, oh, sorry. And when, and when you say here, you mean in your house. Like, they come right in your in your kitchen? Oh, or? yeah. Like, like, well, right now, I don't let them in because they're too dirty. They're, they're all wet. Like, on a dry night, so I'll, I'll open up the door and I'll put the cats in the bedroom and I'll open up the door and they come in and... They go down the basement and look around. They come up and come in here, sit on the couch, watch TV. And, uh, they're very tame. Wow. And I've never been bitten. It, for, for people out there listening that want to check out the YouTube channel, how, what, what is, how did they find it? You just go on YouTube and uh, type in Raccoon Whisper and you'll hit my videos. Incredible. And the uh, no, I I promised her I would do that, but I mean, like I say, it costs money to feed them around 200 to 250 a month. And but uh, depending on how many views I get, Google sends me. Uh, they don't send me a check; they do a direct deposit. Okay. But I should have been doing that years ago. Never thought to.
I want to thank you for joining Jim and I on this journey through the 1978 Clarenville, Newfoundland UFO event. As far as what Constable Blackwood and the others saw that night, well, that's up for debate. But after hearing him describe it, to me, it doesn't sound much like a planet or anything I've ever heard of. And I believe his story. And with that, we'll end this episode. But before we part, I'm going to give some thanks. First of all, a massive thank you to Jim Blackwood for both sharing his story and for taking such good care of all those raccoons. And then, of course, a huge thank you to the listeners of Nighttime. Without your interest and support, Nighttime would be at the back door of Jim's house, begging for hot dogs with the others. If you want to help keep the show rolling, please subscribe to the premium feed. Not only does it make the show possible, it'll give you more of each topic than you'll find here on the free feed. Shortly after the release of this episode, the post-show Nightcap episode will be released exclusively on the premium feed. In that discussion, I'll be joined by podcast UFO's Martin Willis and the well-respected UFO journalist Alejandro Rojas for a discussion on this fantastic event. And further to that, I'll be releasing mastered audio from Jim Blackwood's 1978 press conference. And that's a really interesting listen. You can hear that on the premium feed at patreon.com slash nighttime podcast. And since I brought up the premium feed, let me thank the newest subscribers. Keegan and Angela, thank you for your generous support. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show, you can also help me keep Canada weird by sharing the episodes on social media. If you have any story ideas or if you want to give feedback on the show, you can reach me at nighttimepodcast.com slash contact. You'll also find me on social media. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram using the handle at nighttimepod. Now, until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you ever call the police about a UFO. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte. Showcase. You were in a concentration camp in World War II. I was a young man, locked up in a terrible place. Based on the international best-selling book. But I found something there. Someone. We must keep living. Whatever it takes. The Tattooist of Auschwitz. All new Sundays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.